Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, August 3rd, 2007. This week, episode 48 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, Joe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cliff. And our cyber jockey, CJ. Hey, Joe. <laughs> Trying to keep away from them deer. <laughs> All right, CJ Zach Zlotnick is also here to join us. We've got a, a power-packed show here today. Uh, we also have uh, redone our website, www.iaqradio.com. Check it out when you get a chance. And we are also still offering IAQ console credits. Email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments will include the microband trivia quiz, Mr. Donald Weeks from In-Air Environmental, a little sound off, a news segment, and the roundup. And it looks like we've got our technical director on the line also. Let me let me just check in real quick and make sure. Dieter, are you on the line there? Or is uh, it... Yes, I'm here. Welcome. Good to have you back, and uh, we'll be bringing you in from time to time. Absolutely. Thanks, Dieter. Okay, let's first thank our sponsors. I'd like to start with Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at Dryease, D-R-I-E-A-Z.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. That is J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Okay, to contact the show, you'll have to go to talkshoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. Get to their website, follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547 to contact me, you can email joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And to contact Cliff, it's Cliff Zlotnick, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at C-Z, C-Zlotnick at cs.com. Okay. Or if you like. Or if you like, you guys also have your own email addresses now. Oh, Radio right. Joe at iaqradio.com and Z-Man 
at ieqradio.com. Well, do you have your own address? Yes, I do. Cyberjockey at ieqradio.com. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, CJ. All right. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Our first guest today is going to be Mr. Donald Weeks, CIH, CSP. We've but got first, little... we have the microband oh, trivia question. First, we've got to go to the microband. Thanks, Zach. The microband trivia question for Friday, August 3rd. 2007 is one that indoor air quality people are going to have to think about. A pest control professional and a certified industrial hygienist are called into an office to investigate, I'm sorry, to investigate claims of insect biting and itching among the working population. Some of the workers claim to actually have insects living on their skin and within their work areas. After thorough investigation, insect and environmental factors are eliminated. What is the diagnosis? All right. Thank you, Cliff. Looks like Joe needs that vacation. I almost forgot the trivia quiz today. <laughs> That's okay. All right. I believe we have a little introductory music for Mr. Donald Weeks. Yes, we do. Oh, can it clean air? It's what I need air. I need some clean air. I can't breathe. Oh, won't you give me, give me clean air? It's what I need air. I need some clean air. I can't breathe. Thank you, CJ. Don Weeks is uh, with In Air Environmental. He's their certified industrial hygienist, also a certified safety professional. He has been providing environmental and occupational health and safety assistance for more than 30 years. He has a Bachelor's of Science degree in Environmental Science from, I hope I get this right, Ramapo College, New Jersey. Uh, Ramapo. <laughs> Ramapo. Thank you, Don. And a Master's in Occupational Safety and Health from New York University. He is affiliated with the AIHA. In fact, we'll talk about that a little more detail later. The American Society of Safety Engineers and the Air and Waste Management Association. He is currently a member also of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And Don is also a member of the AIHA's Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, which we're going to talk about a little bit in just a moment. Welcome, Don. Welcome to you both. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We've got uh, a few people on the line here with us, and uh, we may get a couple questions. But let's start with you. Don, you're up in Ottawa, Ontario. I must admit, I had to look on the map just to be certain exactly where <laughs> Ottawa, Ontario is. That's true. I, I noticed that you are from, are you from that area originally? Uh, no, originally from the, the New York City area, actually. Okay, so that's where the uh, two universities come from. You were from the New York City area. How long have you been in the Canada, uh, Canadian area? Uh, since 2005. 2005. I just wanted to be sure you weren't a draft dodger. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sort of a reverse brain drain uh, person. <laughs> I'm coming back up to Canada from the United States instead of the reverse, which seems to be the case in a lot of cases. Right. I so. see. Are, are you, you? I noticed that Ottawa is very close to Montreal, Quebec. Um, is there? Do you do much work in that area? Well, it, it turns out that uh, Ottawa is a very bilingual uh, city, uh, and we can cross a bridge and be in Quebec, where everything is in French. 
And uh, my partner, um, Lan Chi uh, Nguyen uh, Weeks, is also bilingual and basically has the uh, capability of doing work on that side of the river. So, yeah, we do work in Montreal and uh, Quebec as well as in Ontario. And do you still come back down to the States to do some work as well? Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I do work in uh, the New England area as well as New York, and, and, and I have been doing some uh, particularly expert witness work, but also some other project management as well. Well, we, we appreciate having our Canadian friends on the line here, and I, I have a quick question on the differences. Would you agree that indoor environmental quality has been recognized as a public health issue in Canada much longer than in the United States, and if so, why? I think it has been recognized longer here uh, than in the United States um, because the, the climate here uh, pushes the amount of time spent indoors to a much higher level. We, we usually say that, that, uh, that uh, in the United States it's about 90% of the time people are indoors and that's how they are affected by indoor air quality. Well, here in, in Canada, it can be as much as 95% of the time because of the extremes and temperatures, that, in, in particular in the, in the glorious Canadian winters, uh, when people spend much more time indoors than they, they perhaps do in the States. So I think it has been more of an issue from that viewpoint. You know, what were the first IEQ problems that you became aware of in Canada? Well, one of the things that, uh, that has been a, a major issue up here has, has been um, simply the uh, the, uh, the ventilation systems, uh, the uh, inability in many cases to provide adequate uh, 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 ventilation airflow, in, particularly in, 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 uh, in the wintertime. So because of the temperature differential between what is indoors and what is outdoors, uh, there, there, is a, there is a tendency to be, to be a bit overheated in many cases. So that's one of the issues. And then and because of the contrast between the outside and the inside, there's also a great deal of, 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 of concern about uh, mold growth here, uh, particularly inside the walls where, where you may have that, that, uh, that uh, condensation growing inside the walls, which will end up being more of a problem that, that people will have to deal with. So the... Problems of the climate appear to be, you know, a big, big issue. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about how you deal with these very cold climate conditions? Yes. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, that is quite different is that unlike uh, the very warm climate, say, like in Florida and Texas and places like that, the because of the extremes and temperatures are actually just the reverse of what you would find in those very warm climates. In other words, down there you would have very warm uh, uh, temperatures outside and very cold or relatively colder temperatures inside. Here, the, the very, very cold temperatures are outside and the warmer temperatures are inside. So one of the things that is a big issue is, is vapor barriers. Which, which side of the, uh, of, of the vapor barrier is used? It's, qu it's quite the different. It's quite the reverse of what you would, you would expect in the United States or would have in the United States. Unfortunately, when some of the... Uh, designs are, are brought in from, from other uh, contracting companies, construction companies and architects in the United States, they bring these designs, sort of more the tropic designs here, and they find that it's a completely different system that they're up against. Hmm. And, 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 and so because of the differences in the way in which the extremes of the temperatures operate, you're going to have to think differently about building construction and in terms of the way in which you, 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 you put together your walls. Do so it's quite quite unique. 
do building regulations in Canada require homes and buildings to be tighter for energy conservation reasons? And if so, does this cause any particular problems? Well, the many of uh, it's interesting. Uh, many of the same um, regulations that are uh, uh, adopted in the United States are also adopted here in Canada. Uh, for example, locally here we have an OSHA, we have a um, ASHRAE unit that also has many or will ASHRAE chapter that basically deals with the same types of ASHRAE standards that that are are promulgated in the United States. And the building code folks, in many cases, will adopt those particular standards for, as part of the, uh, uh, the building codes. So we have many of the similar problems. The difference is that our, our winters probably run about six months you know, to, to, to seven months, whereas in the States, that, you know, depending on where you are, it can be quite, quite, quite shorter. So we have buildings here that, uh, that are... That are our heating season usually starts after September 30th. That's probably about a month to a month and a half, two months earlier than what would be in the States. So we, we are running our systems for a lot longer, so that can cause some, some difficulties in terms of, of dealing with the, uh, the climate. Isn't there a new – or isn't there a regulation that requires, like, new construction? They actually have to put blower doors on the houses and, you know, prove how efficient they are in order to meet some sort of governmental criteria? Each of the of the provinces have different regulations in regards to that. Here in Ontario, there have been some regulations or or, or uh, information from the various uh, uh, agencies indicating that they you know that they want tighter uh, buildings and including doors and windows and things of that nature that will be more energy efficient. And that that definitely is 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 uh, there's a big movement afoot afoot to do more energy conservation and obviously green building construction as well. So yes, there is that, and, and and there's been a big incentive with regards to uh, tax incentives from both the the province and also from the federal government with regards to doing some of that kind of construction. Now, you mentioned green buildings, and before the show, we talked briefly. I believe you meant you said that there is a um, similar group to the USGBC, the United States Green Building Council. By the way, we have the acronym police here, Don. That. Uh, if we use too many acronyms, CJ will hit me with the siren. So uh, if you hear the siren, you've used an acronym and nobody understands what you're saying, or some people won't. <laughs> but anyhow, do you have a similar organization as w- in Canada? Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an equivalent. Uh, basically, it's called the Canadian uh, Green Building Council. And uh, many of the same types of, of uh, uh, pr- uh, publications and guidelines that have been issued in the United States are uh, adopted here in, in Canada, but they meet the codes that are here, particularly the building codes. So there are, there are some, some differences, but in general, the, the concept is very much the same. Okay. Don, I, I wanted to move on to a project. I was doing some research on your uh, website, and I, I know you weren't directly involved, but I, I think you have checked it out and can help me with some of my questions. And I'll, I'll just quote from your uh, website. It says that as a part of a project initiated to address the potential for occupant exposure to contaminants during renovation and new construction activities, in-air environmental developed procedures for measuring particle, mold, and chemical emissions on building construction sites. The results were employed to characterize various contaminant-generating activities and used to assess the effectiveness of barriers to contaminants 
two contaminant migration. I guess that made me should say four contaminant migration, but either way, this was an ASHRAE research project, RP961. What year was this project done, and what kind of procedures did your group develop for measuring the particles? Let's start with. Uh, this uh, project was done in the year 2000, 2001. Uh, it was a, uh, as you mentioned, an ASHRAE research project for which uh, we received funding from ASHRAE directly. Um, it was actually also a, a master's thesis for my partner again. Uh, Lanshi uh, did this as part of her uh, master's uh, thesis. And uh, it, it was a project that uh, was of interest because basically, there, there was doesn't there wasn't any information that they that was founded or we could find with regards to um, contaminants that might be released during renovations, hmm. uh, and so many of them many of the building owners that do renovations fail to you know they fail to take into account air quality problems that may stem from renovations, and it's not well controlled and. Uh, and many people are not moved out during renovations. They may be moved to another floor, but then that doesn't necessarily prevent a, a drop in air quality. Uh, in many cases, it isn't necessarily um, in emissions totally, although that certainly is, is one where a lot of people may be sensitive to certain types of emissions. You might have people who uh, have developed uh, allergies or even uh, adverse reactions to, to, to just general dust, you know, construction dust. But also it's a comfort level. You know, in many cases you may not be falling down on the ground and choking, but you may be uncomfortable and unpleasant uh, to be in this particular environment with, you know, where you get headaches and respiratory irritations. But there were seven areas that they did uh, research in, and there's a pretty common uh, uh, renovation activities, drywall sanding, cutting of metal with torches and and welding, water damage drywall removal, old ceiling tile removal, and removal of old carpets, painting with latex paint, and air duct installation. And so these types of projects, they 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 took a look at at the um, at each of these projects. They were able to 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 work with uh, various contractors doing this type of work, and they did measurements uh, using uh, specific types of monitoring equipment that were targeted for uh, for contaminants. Uh, that were may be generated in many in most cases that this was uh, uh, volatile volatile organic compounds or VOCs or, or in some cases particulates that are in, in the air. They did the measurements and then they basically wrote a report and indicated these type of, what type of activities would be um, would would generate what type of of uh, contaminants in the air and what might be some of the problems that may be uh, existing with these types of projects. So it was a very interesting project. It's in, in 2004, the Canadian uh, Construction Association came out with uh, with uh, guidelines in terms of uh, construction during renovation uh, and what might be some of the problems that may be uh, existing with these uh, projects, but in particular with mold, uh, and but also with other particulates as well. And so that research project we did in 2000-2001, although it didn't lead directly to the uh, CCA or the uh, Canadian Construction Association's uh, report, it's inter interesting that since that time there's been a lot more emphasis on, on contamination during renovations and, and during t uh, these types of operations. You know, were there any surprises that came out of the research, you know, any, anything that was just really, you know, stunning to you? I think the most important thing is that this was prior to what I would call the, the mold uh, uh, phenomena that was in the early 
you know, the, you know, before that period of time. I mean, we basically, we did this research in 2000, 2001, and really most people would count the Melinda Ballard uh, lawsuit in 2001 as being kind of the start of that whole era. But we found that, you know, that these operations involving um, removal of, of, uh, of uh, uh, water-damaged drywall and also the removal of carpeting uh, would have elevated levels of, of mold spores in the air. Uh, that may not have been, it may not be news now, but at the time it was considered to be, you know, quite interesting in the sense that most people didn't consider that to be an area where you would have potential for mold exposure. And obviously we all know now that, that you know, when we do that type of removal, uh, that is going to be a problem. But back in those days, you know, which is you know six, seven, eight years ago, that that wasn't necessarily the case, and I think that was a revelation to a lot of people. You know, a lot of our listeners are familiar with containments, and I'm wondering whether or not you used a variety of different containment techniques and procedures while you were doing this, or. You know, I've gone into hospitals, as is Joe, sometimes we just see plywood up. In other situations, we've seen plastic and shrink wrap and so on and so forth. I wondered uh, what sort of barriers were used. Yeah, and I guess I'm, I'm curious too, Dawn, uh, what were you able to find, and this is something I've been trying to figure out, were you able to find a standard or a guideline for designing a containment, or did you borrow from some other guidelines like the asbestos? Well, the asbestos guidelines um, certainly were something that were, were of interest to us. But as I mentioned, keep in mind that this was a project that was focusing in on, on areas where most people didn't consider this to be a problem. In other words, you don't necessarily think of drywall sanding as a, as a, as a, a causing a difficulty, and this is particularly true seven, eight years ago. Now, in terms of barriers since that time, uh, there's been a lot of work in, in terms of how, what you do with construction and how you basically prevent indoor air quality problems in, uh, in, off of construction sites. But in those days, uh, very few of these jobs were actually, were there any barriers at all? Uh, what most people did in those cases is if somebody was a complainant about, well, there's too much dust in my workplace, they were moved to another floor. That was about all that people did in those days. And that's what we were focusing in on, is because I think a lot of people were, were mistaken in terms of what they thought the exposures were. They thought that there wasn't any problems with renovation jobs. Well, we can just go ahead and do this. Well, what we found was that there were elevated levels, particularly, as I mentioned, mold and things of that nature, that needed to be separated from other folks. So now we know, for example, that most of the construction work is done under some kind of control, uh, either through a barrier, of, such as a plywood barrier, or as you, as you mentioned, or, or some kind of uh, polyethylene bar barrier, a plastic barrier of some, some sort. But in those days, which is, believe it or not, it was only seven or eight years ago, many construction jobs were not constructed, were not uh, designed to, to operate with barriers. So let, let me get uh, a little more clear on this. These were all done in the, in the same building. Uh, you mentioned several different types of uh, renovation. Yeah, this was all done over a series of different buildings. Uh, oh, I believe. Okay, several different buildings. I was going to say that they, they, the operations were those seven operations I mentioned to you. Um, but they were all done in different, you know, they were, they, this was done over a period of time. It was done over about a year, uh, and we did it in a series of different renovations, depending on where it is that we, uh, we were able to um, uh, get permission from both the building owner and the contractor to do these measurements. So you did some measurements without using controls and with using controls, or 
just one or the other? What we generally did is we did two, three, three different types of samplings. We did one near the contaminant source as close as possible without getting in, you know, in obstructing the work or carrying out the work. Mm-hmm. We did one at 10 meters from the source as to how the contaminants move away from the point where they're generated. And we did one in the supply air or the air entering the construction area if no ventilation system was operating. This was to determine whether the contaminant concentrations were contributed by the ventilation system. By doing it in this way, we were able to show very clearly, you know, whether or not an activity was actually causing uh, contaminants to move away from their source to other areas. If there was a significant concentration at this distance that indicated that several, for example, at 10 meters, it could be that several workstations or rooms around the source would be affected. So all of this work, if they didn't control or have control mechanisms in place, then they basically would be shown by these these measurements that the you know that their work was actually causing contamination. Many of the construction companies that we work with were quite surprised by that. They just didn't never even thought of it as being a problem. Hmm. And so then you also did. I'm still trying to figure out were there containments in place while you were taking these measurements, or sometimes there were, sometimes there were not? Generally, there were not, but if there was, it was very minimal ah, uh, okay. because most, most of this work was done, as I said, in 2000 or 2001. That was really before many of the um, uh, mold, in particular, regulations or guidelines came out into effect. Construction work was not considered to be an activity that would cause difficulty to other people at that point. You might have exposures to the employer, or the employee, I should say, particularly if they were doing welding or something of that nature, but to basically look at, uh, at third-party protection, it wasn't really something that was considered at the time. I think that we've come a long way in, those, in the last seven years. Absolutely. I, I just maybe I was a little confused because I saw the photograph on the on the website next to the pic next to the project and it had a, a negative pressure containment set up there. So I, I was a little confused on that. I'm glad you clarified it. Before we move on, though, how could people get a copy of that uh, study? Um, it is available from from the University of Concordia. Um, which let me just see if I have a website for you here. It is, uh, I believe it is pr.concordia.ca. And if you can look there, you might be able to get information about that. And I believe since it was sponsored by ASHRAE, that there would also be uh, uh, copies of that study at the ASHRAE website as well. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I might have thrown you off there. I know I didn't prepare you for that one at all, Don. But uh, we can certainly get that information up on, on the website. Let me quickly um, check with our technical director here, see if he's on the line. I think CJ picked up some intro music for Dieter this week. Hello, Dieter. Are you there? Yeah. Next time I supply you with a couple of CDs, Beethoven, Benny Goodman, <laughs> yeah, we can do that. That's yeah, what some, we want. Some good music for All a change. Right. Yeah. Well, you know. If you want Beethoven, we can arrange that. We for can you. arrange it, Dieter. Let us know. Okay. Just curious if you had any um, follow-up questions. I don't think you and Don have ever met, but um, I'm wondering if you had any questions that you wanted to follow up with or comment. Uh, no, not really. I mean. Uh, uh, I, 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 uh, I was familiar with a couple of regulations in Canada when I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, 
but that had to do with paint and overspray, and this is 30 years ago, mid-70s or thereabouts, and we had to measure particulate matter, but this was overspray, and that was of uh, interest at the time. I don't think at that time nobody knew what mold and asbestos was, or for that matter, cared about it, you know. That was that's definitely sure. I, I can go back almost the same length of time and actually did work on the uh, the U.S. side with the Bayer Corporation, and you're absolutely right. It was a, it was more of a focus on, and I did mostly, you know, industrial hygiene in factories at the time, and uh, you know that was the focus at the time. We weren't worried about mold or asbestos or other things at that it, point. That question never came up. No, no, exactly. It's funny. I, I started out in in in. Uh, in industry and then proceeded to get involved with indoor air quality in offices and of course during the early 2000s I got involved in you know going to people's homes and doing mold I figured by the end of my career I'm going to be walking the streets asking people how they feel <laughs> well yeah <laughs> no but I think uh, uh, this is the thing I remember I listened to some international speakers during some of the meetings and uh, uh, they were touching on problems and regulations and the solutions which did work very nicely in Finland, and one of the one of the things was, you know, in Finland it's relatively easy. It's a small country where basically you have the same weather all over the place. Mm-hmm. Therefore, quote one regulation is probably damn good to solve 99% of the problems. Now, if you move and you mentioned it, if you move here from 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 the Florida Keys to Chicago or Bangor, Maine, obviously there's a slight difference. Or from Phoenix, Arizona to um, New Orleans. And uh, you mentioned it also, there are a couple of contractors, they just took took building plans which worked somewhere and didn't really adjust them for the different situation in Canada where obviously you spend more time indoors because of the weather. That's correct, yeah. We had a situation here where a contractor came up and brought a, a condo design that he had used in Florida and, and and tried to build it here in Canada. Well, the first time that he basically had a, um, when he was still in the construction stage, uh, he um, his pipes were not completely sealed or not completely insulated, and sure enough, they broke. Well, on top of that, besides the problems in his apartments, the water flowed down through the um, apartments into the basement or where the garage was. There were three layers of, of wallboard that were between the where the uh, garage was underneath the building and where the condos were. Each of those three layers were became moldy because of the water. Mm. Yep, that would make sense, yes. And that was not, you know, you would never expect anybody to build a design like that here in Canada, except if they came from from Florida to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, while we've got Dieter on the line, I, I recall, Dieter, you talking about Alaska. And, Don, it's a question I've wanted to ask you. Um, you have the opposite problem with respect to dealing with relative humidity than many people do. You've got very low relative humidity, is my understanding, much of the year. How are you handling that, and what kind of problems does it cause? Well, that's true. We do have, unfortunately, not today. <laughs> today we're very high today. Uh, where we were expecting tornadoes and, and, and hurricanes. I mean, I'm not hurricanes. I'm sorry, tornadoes and, and uh, thunderstorms today. 
but yes, a good part of the year, it is extremely dry here. Um, it was a, it was astounding to me when I moved up here from from New England, where we were expect where we expect a, a northeastern and very heavy snow. Snow here is extremely light. Uh, even if you get two or three inches, you can basically brush it off with a, with a broom. You don't need a snowblower or, or a shovel to, to get rid of the snow here. Hmm. Uh, it, it's very, very light because it has very little moisture in it. Uh, so during the winter, it is extremely dry. The problems with, you have with that is that people, uh, in particular, their uh, mucous membranes and things of that nature dry out a lot quicker. So you have a lot more problems with people having... Um, respiratory or, or, or nasal passage problems with regards to the dryness of the air. Uh, and that, that can cause people to have a great deal of problems. So you actually have the opposite problem that you would have in, the, in some parts of the states, where instead of basically a dehumidifier, in some cases you will have in your heating systems, your HVAC or heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, you will have a humidifier putting, putting uh, humidity into the air to, in order to prevent those types of problems. And I would imagine you also have uh, dry, you know, dry skin, and and possibly I don't know if it would you would have irritation or rashes, etc., from those things. Um, do you find that the solution sometimes causes other problems? You mentioned humidifying. Absolutely, because when we when we look at ventilation systems that have humidifiers and they have a drain pan and things of that nature, if they're not at, you know not uh, adequately maintained, well, you have the potential for growth again, of mold. So you do have that ad additional problem that of maintenance that you wouldn't necessarily have when you have a dehumidifier situation. So yes, you do have to be much more careful in terms of the types of systems that you've put in and how they're maintained. Well, let's... Uh, well, while I've got you both on, okay, I've, got a, yeah. I've got a question. Quit, I'm sorry, Cliff. You can both answer it in your own way. How would you conduct an odor investigation? You know, People are complaining about odors in a building, and they think that there's something wrong. So I'd like to know how you would do it. And I'd like to have an example, if you can provide us one, of a situation that you've actually resolved the problem. You know, we figured out what it was and resolved it. If I may, I'll, I'll go ahead and start first. Um, one of the things that we find in many odor investigations is that it's often not what people think it is, but it is often what you can smell. So let me explain. Hmm. People will complain in some way, some way or another that there's an odor, and then you ask them to describe what the odor is. They will talk about specific words. It just smells like something. Well, it smells like natural gas, or it smells like sewer odor, or it, in, in some cases it's more descriptive than that, but it isn't necessarily telling you exactly what it is until you actually go and smell it yourself. One of the best things that I've learned in terms of odor investigations is that the most sensitive instrument that you can use to measure odors is with you at all times, and that is your nose. Uh, whereas most instruments may me measure in parts per billion, your nose can detect odors down to parts per trillion. So you're basically dealing with a very sensitive nose or instrument when you're dealing with your own nose, and people are the same way. So I had one situation where we, we had a... Um, a, a, um, a building where on the a top floor of the building where they had a, uh, a, a, a window that was basically used as a sun. Um, it basically allowed the sun to come in. It's basically a large office building where there was a, 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 a shade that was over the window uh, to prevent too much sunlight in the summertime and basically open in the wintertime to allow sun in. Well, in the summertime when the shade was closed, 
there was an odor. Well, the folks there thought it had to be something with the HVAC system. The heating ventilation system had to be putting out the odor. Well, as it turned out, it was only on the odor. It was, the odor only existed on the side on which the, uh, the shade was on. So it wasn't the ventilation system because the same ventilation system was providing air on the other side of the building, and there was no odor. So what they had surmised it to be was not necessarily the case. Of course, the person who, had, uh, who managed the building said, well, it can't be the shade. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's designed specifically for this purpose. Well, it turned out it was designed for this purpose, but not necessarily in this manner. The temperature between the window and the shade was uh, much higher than what the design of the, of the shade had been. It was a plastic design, and it was heating up to as high as 100 to 110 to 120 degrees. Well, the, you know, the, the, the manufacturer of the, of the uh, shade didn't, did not anticipate that it would, you, know, you would ever be subject to that type of temperatures, and it was starting to decompose, and it was starting to emit odors. And so when we, when we basically did the measurements, we took the measurements at the surface of the window rather than down in the, in the um, area uh, where people were located, and we were able to get much higher concentrations right there than we ever would have gotten down at the, uh, the level. It was, in fact, the shade decomposing. What kind of measurements were these, Don? Well, it depended. In this particular case, because it was a $100,000 installation of a shade, we, we bent the extra step and went and, and asked for uh, uh, MSG. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I know I'm going to get. Uh, it's all right. Don't worry. We'll see MS. It was a GCMS type of measurements that we did. We did these measurements. We sent them off. We basically put them into in two uh, formats. We basically took the measurements using a, a, uh, a, a specific type of, of, of bag that we filled up with the odor, which then we sent to an odor panel to do uh, evaluation. And we also sent it through uh, uh, for a, a specific type of, of, of uh analysis that would be able to break down the components of it and we were able to show that one of the components was a component also of the shade itself. So we were able to do that two types of measurements and it did cost a little bit more money in this case but we convinced the building management you know that maybe their hundred thousand dollars was better spent elsewhere. Interesting. Dieter did you have anything you wanted to add before we take a short break here? Yeah well I uh, I investigated several well, irritation slash uh, uh, odor uh, situations when I was still at University of Pittsburgh. And one of them was, you know, the carpets. And very interestingly, uh, the, a temperature a problem occurred there too. When the sun shines through a window and on a, particularly a new carpet, uh, some, yeah, there's some off-gassing going on and has nothing to do with the ventilation system, probably has something to do with the lack of general ventilation. And uh, when do people put in carpets you know, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas when it's cold up here and the windows are closed? Yeah, you should do that in April or May when you can open the windows. But anyway, we worked with the United States Rug Institute through the University of Pittsburgh and set up models which measured irritation and well, also smell. It's not only uh, uh, smelling alone, there's also some irritation involved. And together with the Carpet Institute, we solved the problem. We just used better chemicals, more stable chemicals in binding the carpets together and so on. And that worked quite nicely. And uh, 
it solved the problem. You know, I want to thank both of you for giving us a very, very valuable tip, this effective temperature and, you know, sunlight. You know, the, the amazing thing is it's really an out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation. You know, Joe and I inspect buildings as well, and I can imagine going there, and if I see the sunlight coming through the window, uh, I'm going to think about it. But if I go and I look at the building in the evening, I might not think about it, you know. And uh, so I think that temperature and sunlight, you know, even if you don't see it when you're in the building, it could still be a contributing factor. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. I'll tell you what, let's uh, take a short break here. We're going to put both of you on mute. We'll bring Don back. We want to talk a little bit about the AIHA's Indoor Environmental Quality Committee in just a moment. Oh, indeed, -er. I did manage to scrounge up something for you. All right. Well, there is people. Yes, indeed. <laughs> We've got a new song, new theme song for you. Yeah, Dita. we did. Well done. We, All right. We well done, CJ. CJ, let's move on to uh, a quick sound off new segment here. All right. Pound off. Watch out. Pound off. Three, four. Bring it on round. Rip it on down. Watch out. Three, four. Thank you, CJ. Uh, this week, I want to follow up on last week's sound off. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to show number 47. But first, I want to make clear that last week's sound off about the IAQ Council's recent changes are my personal opinion and not that of the IAQA's board of directors. Second, I want to follow up because after listening to the show, I feel there is some further clarification needed. One point I made is that the membership wants IAQA to work out their differences with the IAQ Council. The IAQ Council has done some very good things. They have raised the bar in many ways. I'm a longtime supporter, former member, and current certificate holder with the IAQ Council. These, however, are the reasons for my passion on the subject. The employees and the management are professional, experienced, and qualified. There are problems, as with any organization, and as a certificate holder, I plan to continue to speak out and help when I can. As IAQ Council moves ever so slowly toward being a democratically run association, I will continue to try and do my best to do what the IAQA members have asked, asked and work together. Time will tell what the response will be from IAQ Council and their leadership. Up to now, I have not been encouraged but I haven't given up yet. Oh, and so people know the reason I'm a former member is I did not quit. They unified. Thank you for that, Cliff. Yeah. We unified and consolidated. That's the only reason I'm a former member. Nope. We also have a uh, little news segment. I don't know if we have anything music-wise for the news segment uh, yes, today. Yes, we do. Oh, CJ, always, you're the always, best. Always. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. My apologies. Mr. Feldman, we, we did find your intro music and when we bring you in for the roundup. We'll bring it to you. We'll bring but in it. any event, I, I want to thank CJ for this good detective work on this IAQ news item. This comes out of Sydney, Australia. Smokers have been banished from the office, but another threat potentially as dangerous may be lurking by the water cooler. It is the laser printer, says Lydia. Moraska, a Queensland University of Technology professor. A study led by the physics professor found that many laser particles are, are, are emitted from printers, 
in clouds of ultra-fine particles that she compared with cigarette smoke and motor vehicle emissions. They're so small you can't see them, she said. Although her team has yet to analyze their chemistry, she warned that such small particles can get deep into the lungs, leading to respiratory and cardiovascular problems. Some particles were also potential carcinogens. Professor Moraska said that about 40 models of laser printers her team tested, 13 were high emitters of particles from the toner. All of these units were relatively new. Office photocopiers failed to produce similar particles. The emissions were detected accidentally when researchers undertaking a joint project with the Queensland Department of Public Works began studying the efficacy of office air ventilation systems, and then they discovered these high concentrations of microscopic particles. Okay. Thank you, Cliff. Let's move back to our, our guest for today. Don, are you still on the line with us? I am here. Okay, great, Dawn. I wanted to ask you a few questions about the AIHA's IEQ committee. And I must admit, I'm, oh, sorry, they got me. Okay, the American Industrial Hygiene Association's Indoor Environmental Quality Committee. Um, I understand you're a committee member and you are working on a new publication that may be coming out pretty soon. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, I wanted to comment a little bit on your, your article. Lydia is a good friend of mine uh, from uh, Australia, and oh, she's wow. an excellent, excellent uh, uh, researcher on ultrafine particles. So I think that what she's telling you about laser printers is really, really quite interesting. Very great. Um, on the uh, on the publication that we're coming out with, um, it is uh, it is uh, going to be on. Uh, it's been kind of nicknamed the the Green Book. It's going to be called officially, I believe, the Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of of, uh, of microbial uh, contamination. Uh, it has been in works for quite some time, um, and it is a supplement to the um, to the field guide, which many people are quite familiar with. Uh, uh, that AIJ has come out, Field Guide for the Determination of Biological Contaminants in Environmental Samples. Our uh, book is going to cover not only the uh, sampling or the investigation of uh, mold uh, contamination, but also dealing with the evaluation of the results of the, uh, of the samples and also how to go about doing uh, remediation. So it will be quite a, quite a publication, I'd say probably we will expect it the first quarter of 2008. It is in final editing at this point, um, and I expect it will be quite an uh, um, excellent publication for those who are interested in those subject matters. You kind of explained already that it's different from the AIHA field guide in that it um, goes into remediation as well, and I, I missed the other part that's a little different from the, the field guide? Well, it's, it's, as I mentioned, the recognition, evaluation, and control, we, we're going beyond just the, 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 the field guide, which basically deals with um, you know, the environmental samples. We deal with the, the source of the problems, such as water can, intrusion, and we're dealing with the, uh, the whole problem of control of these ex, uh, exposures in terms of uh, the remediation part of it. So it, it's a supplement to the field guide uh, rather than a replacement for it. It takes some of the information in, uh, that's in the field guide and highlights it uh, in, in, the, uh, in the green book, but it, it also basically goes in integrated detail as to how do you do an evaluation of, of the samples once they come back from the laboratory. 
I see. Now, so interpreting the, the sample results is, is uh, something that people have been looking for better guidance on for some time now, and, and it looks like that will come out soon. That is correct, yeah. It should be out the first uh, uh, quarter of 2008. How long has this committee been in place and working on this document, Don? Well, the committee itself, uh, the uh, AIHA in Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, has been in existence next year. It will be its 25th anniversary. We're actually expecting to do quite a little bit of a celebration at the uh, conference out in Minneapolis uh, for the American Industrial Hygiene Association. And the committee itself has been working on this publication, as well as many others, for, for, for a number of years. This publication in specifics got started in 2003, and so we're you know, kind of entering our third, our fourth, fifth year in this, but we've been involved with a variety of different other publications, including the field guide. Uh, we did the uh, report of microbial growth task force for AIHA as well. We did a publication called assessment remediation and post remediation verification of mold in buildings in 2004, and then we do our symposium uh, every three years, um, and we've done uh, one on in, on mold in 2003 as well as current uh, IEQ practices in um, worldwide, both in 2003 and in 2006. It's actually coming up again in 2009. Uh, we do it every year after the international indoor air conferences, and we bring some of the best experts from all over the world to, uh, to come in and speak on uh, the subjects, including Lydia that you mentioned earlier, who has been to at least two of our symposia. It will be the seventh one will be coming up in uh, 2009. Great. Now, you mentioned post-remediation verification. How, how detailed will the book get on that subject? That's a subject that people ask about all the time. You know, we need some standard guidelines. We need some numbers, et cetera. How detailed will that get? It will get very detailed on that, and we'll talk about various ways that it can be, uh, how you can verify that a job is an actual, it has been completed satisfactory. It may not necessarily give you the numbers that you're looking for, because numbers, although can be useful in some cases, can also be misleading. Uh, but it will go into a great deal of detail as to how to go about doing a, uh, a post-remediation inspection, how to verify that the mold has, in fact, been removed, making sure that the spore levels have been reduced, and basically uh, you know, being able to say that you can reoccupy the space without having the difficulties that you may have had before this remediation took place. Great. Look forward to that. And uh, I'm curious as well, has there been, it seems like there's been a big, much bigger emphasis recently within AIHA about indoor environmental quality issues. Any chance they'll develop another uh, certification category for indoor environmental quality? There's a possibility. I have to tell you, though, that uh, the um, American Board of Industrial Hygiene, which is That's the ones that put out the CIH, uh, did have a category in the, in the 80s and 90s that was specifically for indoor air quality. Uh, it was a subcategory. Um, they had a number of people who did take that subcategory, but unfortunately, uh, due to, a, I guess, a downturn in the economy and a, a little bit less interest in it, the category was dropped. Um, but we are always pressing ABIH, the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, to come up with uh, a, an additional category that we'd like to see come out, you know, come out again. And certainly, I think with the other certifications that are out there, it would fit in very nicely as a kind of a capstone of somebody's career. Thank you so much for picking up on my uh, confusing AIHA and the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. I have to try and remember that, Don. Don, what we'd like to do at the end of each show is we, we'd like to bring in a, a group of people and do what we call 
the uh, roundup, and generally uh, CJ's got some music to start the roundup here. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Thank you, CJ. I think Glenn Feldman is on the line here with us from IE Connections. Let's see if we can get him unmuted. That would be number two. And we have his intro music. Oh, and all right, CJ, you came up with some intro music for Glenn. Yes, we did. Special request. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Well, it's you, girl, and you should know it. With each glance and every little movement you show it. Love is all around, no need to waste it. You can never tell why, don't you take it? Love is all around, no need to waste Hello, Glenn. Hello. <laughs> I don't know if that's the one you were looking for or not. but That, that may be the longest intro song I've ever heard on your show. <laughs> well, because we liked it because it was Girly Man music. <laughs> it was for Girly Man. <laughs> girly Man song, that's we're for sure. I, think, I, I don't think there was a Lou Grant song, but if there was, I'll take that. You'll take the Lou Grant song. We'll keep working on this. We'll, right. we'll get it refined. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. And uh, we, we were curious if you had any comments or questions before we get started. Oh, just a couple things. You know, I got a call two days ago from a producer for the Today Show, mm -hmm. and they had just received this report out of Australia that you were talking about, and they were looking to do um, you know, a report for, for their American audience, and they were seeking experts on the subject, and I gave them a, a bunch of names of different researchers and, and things that I thought could help them out. And then that uh, horrible bridge collapse happened in, in Minneapolis, and I think that, that took over the, 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 the airwaves on the news shows. So this Australian study hasn't gotten quite the mainstream media play that it, it probably otherwise would have if the week wasn't so eventful. But I, I'm sure it'll come back around, and I think it's something that we're going to be hearing and talking a lot about in the coming years. Great. Okay. Well, was there one other thing you wanted to add, or was you ready to bring everybody back? Yes. If Don's still on, one thing that I was, uh, you'd mentioned when you, you introduced him and described, described some of his activities is that he's active in the uh, organization called, here, get your acronym cops out, ISIAC, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, I believe, which is a, a, a wonderful organization that's not real well known, and I think it'd be great if he maybe just give us a few uh, words to describe that organization. Your, your listeners would enjoy it. Okay. Thank you. Oh, CJ. <laughs> Who got pulled over now, CJ? That would definitely have been Glenn. Nah, I think he I explained. Th he explained. It. He said what it was. Okay. Tell it to the judge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see if we can get Don and Dieter back on the line. Don, are you back? Yes, I am. Still with us? Okay. Glenn had a, a nice uh, comment there, and I think it's something worth following up on. Yeah, Sisiak, um, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. Um, basically, they they are an international organization uh, with members in I think about a hundred countries, 
we have about, I'd say somewhere between seven and 800 members, most of which are, are researchers and governmental uh, researchers at that, although here in the United States, the tendency is for, or in, in North America, I should say, it tends to be mostly practitioners, people who do indoor air quality uh, as a living. Um, they have two annual, two conventions. One is uh, called Indoor Air. The Indoor Air series of meetings occur every three years. The next one will be in Copenhagen uh, in 2008, uh, approximately a year from now, August. Uh, it's a week-long um, um, binge of indoor air quality uh, research. All the latest data from 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 uh, all the various uh, research laboratories that have been. Uh, doing work over the last three years um, on various types of projects, including, I'm sure, Lydia's uh, um, work on, uh, on laser printers. And uh, it's a great opportunity for anyone who's a practitioner to find out more about what's going on in the latest research. It's the first time I heard about mold being a problem back in 1987 uh, in, in the publications they put out. Uh, so, I mean, it's been a long-term issue for researchers. Uh, and the other one is Healthy Buildings, which comes out every three years as well. The last one was last year in uh, Portugal. And next uh, one will be 2009 in Syracuse. So it will be here in, uh, the, you know, in this area, the United States. And it is a more practical version of indoor air, talking about how the research can be actually applied to the science itself. And uh, it, it will be um, held at, uh, in also, I believe, in August of 2009. So a great opportunity for people here in North America who cannot get internationally, uh, cannot travel international to go and meet some of these international um, uh, researchers who do this type of work. Well, thank you, Don. And Dieter, did you have anything you wanted to add or any comments or questions? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. That... Oh, I think we lost you, Dieter. Interested in pushing go. for indoor air quality. After all, that is certainly part of of what their their subjects that they should be interested in. I'm a member of AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. I was a student member, so I must have been there 1968 or 69, and uh, it took them some uh, time, but hey, uh, things can't be done overnight, and I'm glad that they are, uh, have interest in, 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 a, in a topic that is of importance. There's no question about it. Okay. Glenn, did you have anything you wanted to add or any, any other questions? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, great. I don't know. We, CJ had something come in there. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on the other hand, I have been... I'm, Am I still unmuted? You are. You are. Yes, you are. You're I have air. been saying that, and, and Joe knows that. I have been preaching that for five years. You know, when we built office buildings, the ones that are built or have been built in 10 years old, they were built when there were no laser printers. And we didn't have print rooms, and we didn't share uh, laser printers with five, six, or seven other people. And where did we do it? Oh, here's a little corner somewhere in an office. And I said, let's put a table in there and let's put the laser printer on there. No ventilation. That room was never thought to be uh, you know, housing this type of uh, equipment. And nobody gave, uh, uh, gave it some thought. And I know, I mean, yeah, the old, I don't, right now I don't even care about the microparticles. I mean, I care about them. But they're spitting out ozone. That is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but back then you had blueprint 
Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> he had the ammonia from no, that. No, that was alcohol. That oh, was, alcohol? Okay. You like yeah, discipline. They alcohol and ammonia. Right, ammonia. Okay, all right. Well, Get your sinuses. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. real quick, huh, Dater? Absolutely. Well, uh, Don, before we go, we, we always like to make sure that um, if we had anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention, we'd like to give you that opportunity. Um, well, I think that the only thing is, that, and this is a, an alternative uh, conference, uh, and, and I don't mean to – I wish I could go to Las Vegas. I really could, but unfortunately I'm not going to be there. Uh, but I am going to be going to a conference that's uh, in Baltimore. For, so those of you who are on the East Coast, if you have an opportunity and you, you want to get to an indoor air quality conference this, this fall, there is one going to be held uh, by uh, another organization called ASHRAE in Baltimore in October. So just a, just, a, just another meeting that you, that would be of interest to those folks who, uh, again, cannot travel as far as we'd like to have them travel. So just coming down to, in October to ASHRAE's uh, Indoor Air Quality 2007. Okay. And while we got Glenn on, we might as well ask him when and where the IAQA meeting is. IAQA is October 14th to 17th at the Rio All Suites in Las Vegas. Uh, keynote speaker is Bill Nye, the science, science guy, guy, which is pretty cool, and uh, a great program of uh, of technical events and 122 booth exhibit hall. And, and we did, I, I think we can say, Glenn, that we did try like heck to combine the two of them, but it just uh, wasn't, didn't have enough time to get it done. Yeah, it's one of those worlds where uh, you know when you book these things, sometimes you book them so far out in advance, and unfortunately, it just happened that way. But uh, we're making sure that uh, the, the ASHRAE event is held every three years. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen again in three years, that's for sure. All right. And uh, the last thing I wanted to ask, Don, in case any of our listeners want to try and contact you, Don, what's the best place to reach you? Uh, the breast race would be uh, either uh, most likely at my at the uh, website for www.inairenvironmental.ca, not C-O-M, C-A. Uh. And that would be, uh, if from there, you can get to my email address, which would, would be the best way to reach me. Well, great. Thanks thanks so much to, to uh, Don Weeks for joining us this week. And uh, also, to, of course, to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. I want to thank Glenn Fellman. And please hang in there for a minute. We've got a, a quick, important announcement. Uh, Cliff and I have decided we're going to take a little vacation here. We're, uh, we're going to take a little vacation from IAQ Radio. Our next show will be September 7th when we will celebrate our one-year anniversary. We have some really big plans for year number two. We're going to continue to work on improving the show and our newly revised website. There will also be unanswered trivia questions placed back into play every Friday at noon with bigger and better prizes to be announced. So this is Radio Joe Hughes and my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. I'm tired, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) We're both a little tired. Saying thanks so much to our guest, our technical director, to CJ here, and most importantly to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 